But I think for a lot of people, the pain of having someone say something that is, you know, that pain, that hurt, sort of saying, oh, that was really hurtful, comes in, in great part because they're looking outside of themselves for a definition of who they are mm. and for their value and for their worth in the world. Andy Vasily. Thank you very much, wherever you are right now listening to this. I really do appreciate your time and energy and for listening to any episode that you can. Charles Feltman joins me on my podcast today for a second time. Our first conversation in March 2022 took a deep dive into his book, The Thin Book of Trust, An Essential Primer for Building Trust at Work. In that conversation, we unpacked the four assessment domains that he outlines in his book and why understanding these domains is necessary for leaders to increase team cohesion and effectiveness. The four assessment domains revolve deeply around the themes of care, sincerity, reliability, and competence. Our conversation today can be looked at as a part two to that original chat back in March, but much more hands-on as Charles provides us with real examples of what great leadership looks like in action and how the best leaders learn to navigate important discussions to not only build deep trust, but also create the conditions for high performance in their organization. Charles provides deep insight through his life lessons learned, having worked in the arena of trust building for more than three decades. Through the years, Charles has partnered with client companies to design and deliver custom leadership development programs that are unique to each client's needs, culture, and goals. These programs are all designed around the fundamental idea that organizations are networks of conversations. And the more effective leaders are at having the right conversations with the right people at the right times and in the right ways, the more successful their organizations will be. The inspiring author and speaker Brene Brown has had Charles on her own podcast and widely shares the fact that she has used his definitions of trust and distrust in every book she has written because these definitions are practical and actionable, while at the same time deep and meaningful. Charles was on Brene's Dare to Lead podcast in October 2021, and that's when I first came across his work. It was a genuine honor to have Charles back on my own podcast. Wherever you are in the world listening to this, I hope you find lots of value in my discussion with Charles today. Please share this episode with any leader who you feel will benefit from listening to it. And with that, let's dive right into my conversation with Charles Feltman. 
Okay, Charles, it's fantastic to have you on the show again. I really appreciate your time. Our, our last discussion was in March 2022, so about six months ago. So in advance to the conversation, thank you for coming back on my podcast. Uh, it's great to be back with you, Andy. Thank you for inviting me. So I wanted to, again, frame up our discussion today uh, by just reviewing our last discussion. And we took quite a deep dive into your book, The Thin Book of Trust. And I encourage any listeners who haven't listened to our podcast to jump over to the episode and have a listen, because I really think it'll provide them with lots of insight into the book itself. But for now, can you just summarize what you want people to most know about your book to frame up our conversation today, The Thin Book of Trust? Sure. Um, let's see. How would I start? I guess it's, first of all, intended to be, a, uh, it's, as it's titled, um, an essential primer for building trust at work. So it's a thin book. It's called The Thin Book of Trust. Mm. It's a thin book that is essentially a guide to how you can do it, how you can build trust in the workplace. Um, so not a lot of frills, just here are the things you need to think about. Here are the things you need to be aware of. Here are the things you can do. Here are the things you might want to stop doing in order to be both trustworthy and to be able to trust others wisely in the work setting. So I, I outline um, a framework for doing so and then give examples of how that framework can be used. So that's essentially what the book is and does. Mm -hmm. And um, it's been really well accepted. I have uh, I'm still getting lots of people who just out of the blue email me, call me, whatever, and say, hey, read your book. Thank you. It's, it's really been useful. And that's what I love, that it's useful. Mm -hmm. um, also, being a thin book, it can be read in a couple of hours by most people, probably take me three, I'm a slow reader, but um, it can be read in a couple hours, say, for example, on a plane flight, and you can get to the destination and already have some uh, uh, choice around doing something new or different that might increase trust between you and whoever you're going to see in your destination. Mm -hmm. And I was just saying that uh, the podcast, the first episode we did is still getting a number of downloads. And I know a number of people, a number of leaders who've listened to the show, friends of mine who've gotten the book, who've read it, and it has really provoked their thinking about how they can be better leaders and how they can build uh, or, or kind of create the conditions for more trust in the workplace. So it has definitely had an impact. And I want to jump to a quote on page seven before I ask you the next question. But on page seven, you have a beautiful quote, which is, we're never so vulnerable than when we trust someone. But paradoxically, if we cannot trust, neither can we find joy or love. So when you think of this quote and your life's work, what is it that you feel most compelled to share with the world based on the decades you've put into learning about trust? Uh, well, first of all, let me say that quote is from a man named Walter Anderson. And um, that, when I read it, just for me, that's the core of why I even have been engaged in this work um, over the years is because I believe that that love and joy are... Uh, a right that all of us have in the workplace, something that, but something that I find so often lacking. Um, there may be uh, some joy 
here and there, little joyful moments and some love, but a, a, a lot of stress also and a lot of angst and uh, and so a lot of that can be traced to lack of trust, to mm-hmm. distrust, in fact. And that's one of the the reasons that I continue to do this work is to help leaders, teams, people in the workplace become better at building trust with each other, creating the conditions under which others can build trust with, with each other so that there, there's more opportunity for experiencing love, experiencing joy uh, with the people you work with. Um, one of the things that, that struck me years ago when I read a book by Jim Collins called Good to Great is that kind of in summary almost, I, think, I can't remember where he wrote about this, but um, it turns out that the good to great leaders that he studied, um, almost every one of them said in one way or another, uh, working with my leadership team, working with the team that, that led this company through this movement from being a good company to being a great company um, were the best years of my life. I, we loved each other. I loved every moment of working with them, even though we would get into knockdown, drag out fights over what it was we needed to do, what was the right choice, what was the right direction. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it could get really heated at times, we loved each other, and we had a hell of a great time working with each other. And that's what I find is uh, the, the spark that makes work enjoyable and and uh, the results great. When, you know, after our first episode, we had met, um, it was a few weeks after, and we had a conversation around some of the, you know, some of the work you're doing, try to, trying to understand what trust means in different cultures. And mm. when I think of your work, and again, it's been six months since our conversation, you know, I think of you being such a learner yourself. And in what ways has your learning continued to evolve since then? I mean, it's only been six months since our conversation, but how do you continue to hold yourself accountable for being a learner? And what is it that makes this work so important to you? It's a great question. So being a learner requires curiosity. And um, so being curious about the world, about other people, and even about oneself, like in my case, myself, um, really, uh, I mean, I can either, either believe what I think or I can question what I think. I can believe what other people tell me or I can help us both mm. question what we're thinking. Um, and that's part of learning is being open to curiosity and questioning. And of course, so that's kind of the, the basis here. So even questioning what I've thought about trust building and, and what's how it's done best and what's important about it are listening to my clients. The other day, um, a client uh, said something. Actually, he had, he had recorded it as a little video for his 
top leadership. And he was talking about the definition of trust, which is in the book and which I use, which is trust is risking making something you value vulnerable to another person's actions. And I had thought about this aspect of it that I'm going to talk about here in a moment, you know, kind of an offhandedly. Um, and I do actually bring it up with people, but it just the way this particular leader talked about it and worked with it with his own staff, with his own direct reports, was really impressive. He started out, he he gave that definition, then he said, look, if we want to build trust among each other and with uh, our customers and with our suppliers and with our other stakeholders, we need to understand what it is they're making vulnerable to us. That's how we can be trustworthy to them. We can't, otherwise we're just kind of shooting in the dark Mm. about what we need to do, the behaviors that we need to bring to our, those relationships. And um, that really struck me as a a really powerful piece that I hadn't really investigated to a, a great degree before. So just, being curious, listening to my clients, listening to other people. Uh, of course, I work with a whole lot of, of really high-level coaches, facilitators, um, and, of course, leaders. And so having the opportunity to be curious and listen to how they approach this stuff, this trust stuff, um, has been a great laboratory for learning for me. So I am continually learning from all those people. And um, so what else have I learned? I mean, I, there's probably a lot of things that I've learned, but as is the, that is often the case, big learning and even, well, actually small learning along the way is, is at this point a lot of what I'm doing, a lot of what all of us I think are doing. Um, and for me, learning say one more thing about learning itself. Learning means having the capacity to do something different. And so um, it's not just in the, in the head or in the, in the realm of thinking or understanding, but actually being able to do something different. And so um, I continually checking, okay, do I have new choices here in a situation? Um, can I actually do something different or have I just got it in my head and need some, some uh, more work in some way to be able to move that into the realm of behavior for myself, which is of course what I do as a coach with my clients is, you know, they're very smart people. They often have something in their head that they should do different or would like to do different, but then they seem to repeat the old behaviors, so we have to kind of go deeper with them. Um, so in terms of trust and building it, what we need to do differently to take that learning, that information that we have in our heads. You know, people read the book, they read other books, they you know learn about trust in various ways. But how do they take that into the realm of behavior? And more Um, importantly for most leaders, how do they help their teams and their companies as a whole change behavior? 
worked with working with com- one company now, just kind of finishing up the project. Um, it's been about a f- six month long piece of work, and they are working on bringing the cycle of commitment, which is I talk about in the book, into their company and making it part of you know basic part of their culture. That's how they're going to operate with each other is using the cycle of commitment to make, you know, to get things done, basically. I'll just say that much about it. And that's a big endeavor when you think about it, right? A whole company changing behavior, not just lip service to it, but changing behavior. In other teams and other companies uh, that I'm working with, again, they want to build stronger trust. They want to be better trust builders. If you look at that on the scale of a whole company, that's a huge endeavor. And it it takes beginners, them all kind of going to beginner's mind, being willing to ask questions, being willing to ask for help, being willing to support each other as they go through the process. Hey, uh, I, I noticed that the request you just made was really clean and clear and complete. Thank you. Um, so, you know, highlighting that for each other or, hey, the the way you just handled that, um, that uh, conflict that we had, I really appreciate how you did that in such a way that I, that I feel like I trust you even more now. That's the language of trust that you talk about too. And it's so wonderfully... Put you know when when people uh, use language in that way, I feel safe just hearing you say that. So it's that idea of the language of trust, which you kind of unpack in the book. And how do you, as a consultant and a coach, it's about unlocking internal resources within your your clients and these leaders that you coach. And how do you balance? telling them like you you probably recognize things that they might not see when do you know to step in and make suggestions as opposed to asking questions to further unpack their thinking is there a fine line there or do you try to just stay in question unlock internal resources mode with your clients that's a question that every coach kind of struggles with, right? Mm, yeah. <laughs> because we're all pretty familiar with the fact that um, giving advice doesn't land nearly as well in terms of actual behavior change as having the client recognize for themselves and give themselves, you know, sort of find their own best advice, if you will. Um, I give you advice and um, it may be great advice, and you even may recognize it as great advice. But there's no emotional charge. There's no the, the emotional charge that comes with unlocking that for yourself is what carries you into the domain of okay, now I'm going to put it into action. Whereas if I just say, "Hey, Andy, you know, you should try this," mm-hmm. or you could even even more kind of. Um, are less attached, you could try this, uh, doesn't usually, it doesn't have that power. Mm-hmm. So I stay mostly in the domain of of exploration with my client, helping, asking the questions, making the observations that help them find their own best advice, find their own aha moments. 
That said, it, it sometimes I will, uh, for example, the other day, just, just a simple example, um, a client was, was working through something and I was having him say, he, he was working, th- we were role playing. He was working through how he was going to say something to um, someone else, um, which is something I do often as, as a coach. So he was, and I stop and ask, okay, how did that feel? How did that resonate? What happened for you? Um, what sensations came up? What emotions? Blah, blah, blah. So we talked through all of that. And at some point, he was circling around and circling around um, this one area that I, 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 thought I had a pretty good uh, uh, understanding of what was going on for him. So in that case, I just, and I do this sometimes, I said, can I make a suggestion? Try saying this, and I give him some words. So he said that with his own kind of modifications for it, and it really hit home. So, but if I had said it, if I had made that suggestion you know, three, four, five minutes earlier, probably wouldn't have landed. So a lot of it's timing, mm-hmm. being able to kind of sense when a client is close enough that putting a, a suggestion out there um, will actually unlock something. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. And I want to read one of Brene's quotes to you, Brene Brown. Brene Brown. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Brene Brown. And then it, it'll lead into the next question, but I, I love this quote, and she got it from Theodore Roosevelt, and it's the man in the arena quote. And what she says is, in one of her talks, she says that it changed her life, this quote. And the quote is this, it's not the critic who counts, it's not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done it better. The credit belongs to the person in the arena whose face is marred with blood, sweat, and dust, who at their best in the end knows the triumph of high achievement and who at their worst, if they fail, they fail daring greatly. And I want you to reflect on this quote and and what it means to lead with authenticity. And a mentor of mine compares high performers to like the very tip of the arrow and that the very best of the best do things in very special ways. Can you give some real-life examples of phenomenal leadership that you've seen in practice and observed, and and what separates great leaders from good or average ones based on your experience? Um, yes, and there's there are some things that I see in that, that the sort of great leaders, the, the, the ones that I have had the um the opportunity the, the great opportunity to see or interact with in person um and one of those behaviors if you will one of those ways of thinking really and it, it and uh, jim collins going back to that book good to great he talks about that the good to great leaders um Really, they, when it came to what was going on, what was going well, they looked outwards and found the places where, found the res- people responsible for it going well. They surrounded themselves with people who were um, really good at and better than them at what they were doing. First of all, um, they weren't afraid to to work with people who were smarter, 
in their opinion, smarter, better at, whatever. And when things went well, they looked outwards to those people and gave them um, it gave them thanks and gave them you know appreciation, uh, gave them the responsibility in a sense or acknowledged their their actions. When things went poorly, they looked in the mirror and said, "Okay, what can I do better? How can I make this better?" Rather than saying, How, "What do I need to do? What do they need to do?" Um, so that's one of the I think one of the fundamental characteristics of of really great leaders. Another one is that really great leaders do uh, really interrogate their own thoughts. They, they really take a hard look at themselves. So they're, they are themselves uh, lifelong learners. They don't assume that they know everything that they never assume that they know everything they need to know. Um, they're always, they may be strongly opinionated and they're willing to listen to other people's opinions and um, and give that consideration. So it's one thing just to listen, you know, sort of hot, hot, uh, head nodding um, and all that and make it look like you're listening. But they actually genuinely consider other people's thoughts, ideas, opinions. Um, they don't take BS. Um they're they're not going to uh, just listen to somebody who's who's talking without uh, and kind of getting back to the definition of trust in the realm of sincerity or the domain of sincerity. Um, great leaders themselves, when they offer an opinion, they they back it up. They here's why I think this. And they're also willing to say, here's why I think this, but poke holes in my idea, poke holes in my opinion, help me maybe rethink it. They're not just stuck where they are, and they surround themselves with people who are willing to do that with them and for them. Um, just heard a really good um, podcast with uh, Adam Grant and... Hmm. Um, and Shakar uh, Vadantan, the uh, uh, Hidden Brain, yeah, awesome uh, podcast. Love that podcast. And he, he, uh, Adam Grant, relates a story about uh, how um, Steve Jobs hated the idea for a very long time of making a phone. Just hated the idea, um, but he eventually listened to and allowed his his people to. Um, convince him that it was the right way to go, mm-hmm. um, even though he even even as they were building it and trying it out, uh, he was finding faults in it and really disagreeing with the whole idea. He eventually came around to it. So openness to it's another great leadership characteristic. Have a strong point of view, opinion, and be willing and open to listening to others. Um, and another one, yet another example, I think of, uh, I think of particular leaders that I've known is that, um, they will be honest about the way things are. This is what's happening. This is, you know, this is the truth right now. This is a, the truth on the ground and it may not be pretty. 
in fact, in you know, for great leaders to they don't they don't sugarcoat the situation for their folks. They don't try and make it look any different than it really is. But what they also do is point to the hope for the future. This is how we can get beyond this. This is what we need to do. Um, a friend of mine some years ago, uh, Lisa Marshall, wrote a book um, about leadership maturity. And the title of her book was Speak the Truth and Point to Hope, which is what I see um, leaders do that I think are really exceptional leaders. They, they do just that. Um, so they don't leave people stranded. <laughs> they tell the truth, but they don't leave people stranded there. Nor do they sugarcoat, hoping that people won't sort of figure it out and <laughs> that they're being snowed. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, those are some of the things that I've seen um, really exceptional leaders do that have that effect, that that allow them or make them the kind of leaders who... Um, make things happen, have it create great experiences and great products and great uh, whatever within their company. They create, create great teams and great companies, I guess I should say. Uh, and that can happen all throughout the organization. It doesn't have to be the CEO. Um, it can be the, the first-line manager who has a team of, uh, of direct reports who are all um, individual contributors and that person, and I've seen some of those folks who are what I consider great leaders at that level. Yeah, and you you mentioned optimism, and and that's at the core of performance psychology. And again, one of my mentors, Dr. Michael Gervais from the Finding Mastery podcast, he has, uh, you know, he has devoted his life to unpacking what high performance means, and he he says that optimism is placed at the very core of high performance and it's not just fluffy optimism but it's being optimistic that good will come but that's based on hard work being done in order to allow good work to happen in the future you know so there is a sense of optimism there and and hope not just by chance and it's not going to happen on its own but it's the hard work that people are willing to put in and then with that hard work comes the confidence to be optimistic and to, to know that the future will work out. And yeah. as you said, surrounding yourself with, with great people and aligning yourself with great people allows that to happen. And that quote about the man in the arena really rings so true to me because from my experiences, the very best leaders I've seen are the ones in the trenches and they're one, the ones willing to make themselves vulnerable and work alongside people rather than position themselves uh, above them. You know, so I think that's what I hear coming alive in, in your words. Yes, that, that the man in the arena, the woman in the arena who are willing to um, actually engage, engage authentically, engage vulnerably, which so often... Um, is difficult for leaders to do vulnerability, especially in in U.S. business culture, and to a great degree in in Europe, Western European business culture, um, it, it is not something that people feel comfortable with. That that sort of engaging vulnerably. Uh, so, what does that look and sound like? It looks and sound like um, 
acknowledging I may not have or probably don't have all the answers. I need help. I need you guys to help all of us together figure this out. Um, I'm not the guy who is going to just stand at the, you know, stand at the in, in front of everybody else and, and lead without even looking back over my shoulder to see if anybody's behind me and with me. But rather, I'm going to be in the in the middle of it with all of you, mm. um, and I'm going to take risks. Um, and I encourage all of you to take risks. Um, in fact, uh, learning comes from taking risks, right? New ideas come from taking risks. We don't, you know, t- taking risks and failing. Um, and uh, 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 someone I reported to and worked worked for for a while, um, Brene asked Brene Brown when I um, did that podcast with her, recorded it. She asked me, you know, what what um, things struck with me over the stuck with me over the years from. Um, from someone that I had thought was a, a good leader is uh, um, that what I responded when she asked me the question was, well, one of the things that's been with me for a long time is when you're, when you're leading or in any kind of condition, um, uh, help allow people to, to fail and learn rather than make some failure is not about um, something wrong, something bad, um, but rather, an opportunity to learn and grow and making it clear as a leader that that's what you want then and rewarding that following that up with appropriate action when somebody does fail okay great you failed let's figure out what happened so we don't repeat it let's learn what we can from this um yeah uh, I, and I had some other thought big coming off of what you said, and now I've forgotten what that was. <laughs> yeah, it might come to you because I, I actually want to read a quote from Oprah to you that is is really, um, I think, emphasizes what you're saying. And, you know, Oprah going through what she's gone through in her life and to achieve what she has is extraordinary. And what she said once in a talk is, when it appears that something has happened to you, uh, it is always happening for you to strengthen you and that's that idea of you know when i think of leaders who are who've been hammered by really negative almost hurtful feedback and if they are to truly open themselves up to the learning that can be found they need to take some steps to in order to make that learning happen and to address the feedback in empowering ways to help them grow and learn from it but what is your advice to leaders who have been really hammered by negative feedback, hurtful feedback? They feel it's unjust. Um, what is your advice to leaders to better deal with that feedback in a way that allows them to truly learn from their mistakes and to uh, be open to the growth that can come from the feedback? Yeah. Um so one of the things you just, one of the words you just used there, hurtful, mm. is I think a key to that. What, what's the hurt? Where does that hurt come from? And almost always it, it comes from um, so, uh, a blow to the ego, right? I mean, someone may say something in a way that's really 
you know, nasty. We've all experienced someone, probably most all of us have experienced someone um, saying something intended to produce feelings of hurt, um, produced feelings of, of uh, um, feeling like we're being belittled uh, and, and cut down. Um, and so really taking a look at what it is, in, in that extreme case, taking a look at, all right, what truth is there in this? And um, yeah, that person is saying this in a particular way, and I can take it that way, sure. And how's that going to benefit me or anybody else, for starters? Uh, am I going to you know, am I going to be a better person because I believe that this believe the the hurt that I'm experiencing? Yeah, it's it's there, absolutely. And at the same time. Um, ultimately, I'm okay. And I think this is where, this is actually a great place for growth there is, okay, um, what do I need to do for myself to recognize that I'm okay, that I'm uh, a valid human being, to kind of build or rebuild or reconnect with my own sense of self-respect, um, even though this other person apparently does not respect me, that's their opinion. That's their assessment. It does not belong to me. It belongs to them. And to what extent do I need to give it credence? Is there, you know, they may have a really strong negative assessment of me. So What? What's important about that? And what can I learn from what they're saying? Is there something here for me to actually learn? But in a sense, taking control of my own self-worth and where that comes from as opposed to giving it to that other person. Charles, do you think that's easier? Sorry to interrupt, but do you think that's easier for leaders who are aligned to their core values? Is it easier to do that when they're more aligned to their core values to remind them of their core values and to stay in alignment with those those core values as opposed to leaders who are misaligned and may have fallen out of sync with the core values that they hold close to their heart? Well, certainly if somebody is pointing out something to me um, that... uh, they're pointing out to me that I am, there's a misalignment between what I say are my values and how I'm acting. Mm-hmm. I need to pay attention to that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, um, and there is usually a period of, oh shit. Oh God. Yeah. Wow. Um, that, that hits, that hurts in a way, but it's me kind of hurting myself, if you will, or beating myself up about that. And there's, so there's always a, a, a bit of time where I have to, go through that and then wait a minute. All right. So what do I need to do? What do I need to change? What's important here? My core values, what's leading to me behaving in a way that's um, not aligned with my core values. But I think for a lot of people, the pain of having someone um, say something that is, you know, that pain, that hurt sort of saying, Oh, that was really hurtful. 
um, comes in, in great part because they're looking outside of themselves for a definition of who they are mm. and for their value and for their worth in the world. And quite honestly, I think that we all go through a period of our lives in our growing and development as a human being and certainly as a leader where we do that. And that's how we, you know, we look around and say, okay, this is how we're supposed to be. We look to others to be the, the uh, guides for how we're supposed to be in the world. And if someone, one of those people um, says, you're a jerk, you're really, <laughs> you're blowing it. You're all right. Um, it, it really does hurt. It takes mm-hmm. it in. Uh, it take it, taking that in is really painful, and really examining that can begin to be a um, begin a shift into a different way of look, being in the world where I'm in control of. I'm the one who's in control of who I am in the world, and of re- you know, evaluating what are my values, even asking that question. Um, can also be part of that process. What's important to me? What are values that I want to live by? Um, Often, if I live by other people's values, um, we might consider that inauthentic, but I think that's just really a stage of of human development um, and and maturing. And to move out of that stage comes from things like asking myself, what are my values and, and how do I live by them? And when somebody points out then that I'm not doing that, then it's up to me to figure out what's the difference rather than being kind of like at the mercy, if you will, of other people's assessments of how I'm living and what I'm supposed to do. That stage is really important because before that is just all about me. The stage before that is, and I sort of very ego-driven, you know, I, I want what I want, I'm going to get it however I can possibly get it. We move into a much more socially, outwardly, uh, we become socialized that way um, through looking at others and to others for how we're supposed to be. So it's an important stage of development, but um, to be a really a effective leader, we need to at least move into the next stage of development, which is, oh no, I'm the one who's sitting determines what my values are um, and how I, how well I live those values and who I am. I'm, I'm the author of that, if you will. So I will also say that in response to your first question, self-trust is leaders, great leaders I've um, worked with really do trust themselves as the, um, as part of the, you know, as part of who they are, they trust themselves and their own guy. They're they're not afraid to trust others and trust input from others. Um, they also so that's one of the reasons. <laughs> because they trust themselves deeply, they can also ask for help. They can ask for ideas and thoughts and guidance um, and feedback, even negative feedback. In fact, especially negative feedback. Um, because they trust who they are at a core level. And I think what you highlighted there too is creating the space and time to reflect. And that's what great leaders do is they create that space and they give themselves time instead of a knee-jerk reaction. They allow it to digest and they absolutely build in the precious sacred time necessary to reflect on the learning 
right? And to be comfortable with with creating that space and discomfort. And I hear that coming alive in what you're saying that great leaders do is they create space and time to critically reflect. And as you said earlier in the podcast, to look in the mirror and look to ways uh, to see ways that they can do things uh, differently and to, to learn from it. And I have a friend who's who's a leader who said that when he receives really harsh feedback, he used to be really emotionally triggered and it really got in the way of him responding in positive ways and how he learned to look at the feedback rather than being angry. He forced himself to to ask. He actually asked himself the question, what needs are not being met? What needs of theirs are not being met? Sure, they gave me awful feedback, hurtful feedback, but there are needs that are not being met for them. Do you find that a helpful way to to look at it? Yeah, absolutely. Kind of getting back to um, that question of what do people, um, when they trust us, what um, what are they making vulnerable to us? It's the same thing. It's what needs... um, do they have the same, in a sense, the same kind of question? What do they need in order that, that, that we're, I'm not providing them? Um, the leader asks that question. What and is it something that I'm willing to provide and can provide? Um, and if I can't, is there some other way that they can get those needs met that I can help them move towards? Um, but my, in that sense, and that's uh, what you're saying, I love is that the great leaders ask themselves that question or those questions, you know, how can I, how can I help this person get their needs met um, in a way that'll allow them to thrive and allow me to thrive as well in the, in the process. Now, sometimes you you also great leaders recognize that uh, someone may need something that me as a leader and my company can't provide. And that may be, maybe it's time for that person to, to move on. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe it's time for me to move on. I've worked with leaders who have uh, gotten to a point in a company and their, their uh, growth as leaders and in their work in a particular company where they recognized, you know what, um, this, this company um is not uh, meeting my needs and I'm not meeting theirs. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I need to go somewhere else. I need to take what I have, um, the, the value that I have to offer, um, the value of who I am, take it somewhere else where it can be better put to use. Which is making themselves vulnerable and taking the chance to move on. Yeah. Right. And and that's scary. And I think that's where a lot of people fall short as they they stay in in a situation that they shouldn't stay in. And and it does them no credit in bringing out their very best. So I, I think that's great advice. And I know Simon Sinek told this story once, um, and you might have heard this, but it just really struck me in hearing this story. But uh, he talked about the the I think it was called uh, the Black Death of Childbed. He talks about in the 18, mid-1800s, maybe 1840, 1850, when the incidence of uh, women dying um, 
essentially what was happening, a lot of women were dying within 48 hours of giving birth. And it was increasing and increasing. And it was alarming. And the med medical community, these men of science, really wanted to figure it out. So these doctors would in the morning do autopsies on these women who had died within 48 hours of, of giving birth to try to figure it out. And in the afternoon, they would go deliver babies. And Oliver Wendell Holmes is like in 1850 or something says, I think I know the problem. You're not washing your hands. And if you just wash your hands, then it'll go away. And they ostracized him and called him crazy and, and stupid. And he didn't know what he was talking about. And it continued for 30 years. And then finally, one day, the med medical community figured out that that was the problem. And Simon Sinek shares that story to say, you're the problem. And oftentimes leaders who fail, fail to understand that maybe they're the problem. They might be blaming all the people for not getting it and not understanding and not doing the job that they have to do. But Simon told that story to have leaders point the finger at themselves and say, maybe I am the problem. Maybe I'm getting in the way. So just a way to kind of a harsh story, but uh, an important message, right? Yeah. Well, and I think it is a really important attribute of great leaders is that they do look in the mirror. They say, you know, that's kind of the first place they look is mm -hmm. what's my part in this. Um, and I also getting back to the whole issue of trust and building trust when trust breaks down uh, the first place uh, to look is me. What am I doing here? Yeah. The other person may look really dis you know, untrustworthy to me. Um, and yeah, that's, they're doing something that is untrustworthy to me. And what's my role in it? And every time that happens for me, every time I walk a leader through that, sort of the questions around that, um, there is something. I have some involvement or the leader I'm working with has some involvement in, in it that they can take on for themselves and change. And when again, my part, when I do that for myself, um, it changes the system. And uh, when a system, when one part of a system changes, the rest of the system has to change. So asking that question, what's my role here? What's my part? And addressing that before I, you know, do anything about other parts of the system is, I think, critical. And leaders, again, great leaders do that. And just one last question before we segue into the end of the podcast, but how do you help organizations that are carrying a lot of baggage? So you have pockets of leaders within the organization that are really doing exceptional work. Maybe some leaders have been there a long time who are not doing uh, exceptional work. So you have pockets of greatness, and yet there's some baggage that the organization is carrying with it that causes morale to be low at times. How do you work with organizations and leaders in a way that allow them to acknowledge the baggage that's being carried that needs to be 
lifted and let go in order to truly move forward and to create the conditions for everybody to to flourish in the organization so the, kind of the baggage that that um, organizations bring with them and the importance of letting it go well um, in any situation where whether I'm working with an individual or a leadership team um, at some point in the process, I, I like to ask the question, actually three questions, ask them to answer three questions um, as we transition. You want something to be different, right? So you, you're moving through a transition or you're beginning a transition or you're even even deep in the middle of it. Um, what do I need to let go of? What do I want to keep or need to keep? And what do I need to add or bring in that is not yet here? And an ex deep exploration of those three questions has carries a lot of power in it for people who engage, who step into the arena of those three questions. Mm. They seem simple on the surface, but for myself and with other people that uh, other clients that I've worked with, it really is very powerful to take it take those questions seriously and work with them for a while because each one of them has a lot to it. So what do I need to leave behind invites the, uh, the exploration. What is, what is that baggage that we need to leave behind? Um, and from there, how do we do that? How are we going to, as leaders of this organization, how are we going to maybe inoculate ourselves the organization against that. Um, what what about our culture? What is it about our culture that, that needs to be left behind as we shift and, and reinvent new culture? And I'm going to give a nod to my new favorite book, Reculturing, by Melissa Daimler, uh, where she talks about culture as really a living thing. Mm. Um, it's not some kind of static... Um, Think, but um, you know, what is it that we need to leave behind, as well as what do we need to carry forward through this transition, and what do we need to add? Um, and there may be, as as changes are made around that, um, in terms of both the the um, processes. She so see if I can find this really quickly here. Sure. Um, because I think she says it beautifully, but of course I... Oh, wait, here we go. My notes here. She says, I love this, culture is the connection between people, the relationships that are important. It is how work happens between people. Culture is a system that is comprised of three components, behaviors, processes, and practices. So looking at those three components of culture, of one's organizational culture, and saying, what is it that is not working for us now and we need to leave behind? And then how do we do that? What are the things we need to do? And sometimes that may mean leaving certain people behind who are stuck with that and who are unwilling to give that up. Mm. Um, and then what do we need to, to take on? Uh, are yeah going forward? What do we need to take mm -hmm. on, and what do we need to carry forward? Mm 
in those three areas, um, I think is is uh, key to that. Is key to yeah. dealing with that baggage, and it's it's a series. It's a series of hard conversations that need to be had, and having the fortitude and the self trust and the trust in each other, trust in the team, um, particularly in the domain of care, the the assessment that all of us on this team have each other's best interests in mind, intend good for each other, um, and we're all in this together in terms of changing the culture or moving forward, creating a new, uh, a, a different culture here, leaving that baggage behind allows us to have those hard conversations first with each other and then with others in the organization. And one thing that comes to mind is when you think about letting go of something or leaving something behind, it seems very safe to keep it like a strategy or a organizational goal or something like that. But it's much more personal when I have to leave part of myself behind that doesn't serve the company well. So for example, my need for control, you know, I have to leave that behind. I have to lead, uh, leave behind my uh, perfectionism, maybe whatever it is, but sometimes it's personal too, that things you have to leave behind. Correct. Yes, and that's where we need people to be able to give us good, honest feedback that cuts to the, what is it about me? Help me figure out what aspects of myself I need to leave behind. And then, as you say, <laughs> that takes some work. Yeah. And that's where coaches, executive coaches, um, really can be valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, that process of coaching when there is something that you know you need to leave behind and it's something that you've practiced really well over the years mm-hmm. practiced my um my uh let's say my pleasing being ple- a pleaser right because yeah. that's one of mine so i'll take that one earn ho- ho- i'll hold that one um mm-hmm. my desire to please other people um has not served me first of all recognizing that finding people who can kind of point that out to me um, or taking a 360, which um, points that out to me in some way or something. But in any way, I get it. So now, oh, shit, <laughs> I have to actually do something about that. I have to figure out how to live my life in a way, at least in certain contexts, where I'm not such, I'm not so devoted to pleasing people. Um, it's getting in my way. So I've had that experience personally myself. Um, for other people, it's uh, need for control or um, it's um, hypercritical, you know, being hypercritical or micromanaging or whatever it is. And there's always a reason for it, right? Mm-hmm. It's not like that's just who I am, but there is a reason that that particular way of being shows up in us. Um, pleasing was a way I got through my family, um, of my family of origin, uh, and um, was able to get along with my family of origin. And so, it, you know, it goes that far back, and it's a deeply held, and it, you know, many other times throughout my life, being a pleaser has been really helpful. And 
it's also been a drag on uh, my ability to lead teams and um, and even coach people effectively because if I'm in the business of trying to please my clients rather than coach them, <laughs> I'm not going to have yeah. very, very many clients in the end. It may, yeah. it may seem good at first, but they're not going to, they're not going to learn and grow. So. Yeah, that's, that's very, very sound, solid advice. And I love that. And I'm going to listen back to this podcast and be taking notes myself. And it's uh, any leader listening to this or aspiring leader could really benefit from those words. So thank you. And moving into the end of the podcast, Charles, I want to share a, a quote with you uh, and then ask you one last question and then know where people can find you and find the book and all of that. But the quote is from Henry Thoreau, uh, American philosopher and poet from the 1800s. And It's one of my favorite quotes. I keep it up on the wall at home. And it's this, if you advance confidently in the direction of your dreams, your own dreams, and endeavor to live the life that you imagined, you will meet with a success unexpected in common hours. I love that quote. But when you think about your own life and, you know, Brene's podcast, Brene Brown's podcast with you, you really talked about your life very honestly and and openly about the struggles and what you learned and and how those struggles just led you on the path that you're ultimately on now but when you think of the path that you that ultimately led you to this moment in time what does that quote mean to you and what parting words do you want to leave the listeners with in regards to you know the work that you've done what you've committed your life to and and uh, what you're most proud of? Well, there's a whole lot of questions there. I know. <laughs> that could be an entire yeah. other podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah uh, I'm going to actually take this in kind of a funny other direction, perhaps. Sure. sure. There, I'm going to, so two things. One, somewhere somewhere around my late 20s, it suddenly occurred to me that, for me anyway, um, and I think for many people, the, the, the thought came to me that being in relationship with others is the highest form of creativity available to human beings. Now, that relationship can be with another human being, multiple other human beings or even nature and, and um, you know, beings other than human. Um, but it's, it is ultimately in my mind, the highest form of creativity. So for me, um, relationship and making relationship as good as it can be as liberating as as um, big and open as possible and as honest as possible uh, is, is one of, it's, I don't say it's a dream, but it's, it's kind of one of my values and one of the things that I, that I live with um, and has kind of formed who I am um, and what I do. Another is a quote from, and I'm going to, God, I'm going to forget his name, darn it. Famous playwright, whose plays I never really altogether loved, but uh, 
He wrote, for example, um, Waiting for Godot. If you... Oh. Uh, yeah. Oh, I got it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, this is terrible. I, I, on a podcast, I should have yeah. his name. Um, yeah, I, I just, I'm trying to remember myself. <laughs> Google it. <laughs> I, I will, as you're, as you're sharing it right now, I'll, I'll Google it. Yeah. But what he said of his work, all his life work, which is plays and other written you know, writings and, and so on, as he said, it's all that I can and more than I could. Samuel Beckett. By, yes, thank you, Samuel Beckett. I knew it started with an S, and you you did too. I could hear that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Samuel Beckett, more than I can, all that I can, more than I could. So and what he was essentially saying is, I'm going to put all of myself, all of what I currently have available into this, whatever this is, whether it's writing this book or... Um, you know, working with this client or working with this team, I'm going to put all that I can into this, recognizing that other people are going to take away something else and move it on out and become ultimately far bigger than I could ever make it. So if I hold on to something, like, you know, if I were to hold on to some sort of ownership, sense of ownership around the thin book of trust, I don't think it would have become, and the ideas in it, which, by the way, aren't really ultimately mine. Um, most of them come from other places, other sources. I've put them to pull them together, right? Um, and that is what I could do. And I added a few things. I mean, I, I um, am, for example, responsible for the definition of trust, although it comes from other parts of it come from other sources. Mm-hmm. But if I were to hold on to that and make it sort of my stuff. Um, I don't think it would have had nearly the as wide an audience or uh, have been of value for nearly as many people. And other people take it. There's, there, I don't know, you know there's probably thousands of, of coaches and facilitators and HR people and whatever who have taken it, added their own flavors to it, used it in their own ways, in their own work, with their own clients. Um, and that's fine with me. I think that's just fabulous. And um, so that idea of it's, it's all that I could at the time, and it's out there doing more, much more than I ever could in the hands of other people. So those two things, I think, are really kind of, for me, have been part of my journey yeah, so that's- far. Yeah, that's that's great. And, and the journey continues. And I really want to thank you for your time, Charles. I, I love the conversation today. And, and uh, just connecting with you uh, means a lot to me. And I, I'm really grateful that you came back on the podcast. And in closing, where can people find the book and uh, just share your uh, website where people can find your coaching website? Uh, the website is www.insightcoaching. That's all one word. I-N-S-I-G-H-T-C-O-A-C-H-I-N-G. Insightcoaching.com. So that's the website. The book you can find on Amazon in the U.S. for sure and in Canada. Um, And in some parts in Europe uh, and other parts of the world, it's really hard to get uh, to get it in actual hard copy form. You can get it as a a Kindle reader 
form, I think, in most parts of the world. Um, but then you miss all the cool illustrations that come with it. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, when I bought it for my leadership team here and we did a book study, I told you last um, when we recorded last time. So I bought nine copies and we have one leader, um, a 10th leader who is not in all of the meetings. And I, I didn't mean to, but I totally forgot to get her a book. And then I was like, that's my bad. I should have ordered it uh, for you as well. It was my mistake. And I tried to order it online and I couldn't get it. I couldn't get that one copy. And I yeah. went to Amazon UK, Amazon Canada, Amazon US, and and I couldn't get it. So for about three or four months and but we have our copy and we're happy to have the copy on our bookshelf here at the Coast School in Saudi Arabia. Well, and I will say one other place, of course, that, that you can get it is the publisher themselves, Thin Book Publishing. Okay. And uh, if you order lots of copies, you get a, you know, more than 10 copies, you get a quantity discount. And the uh, shipping and handling is really high because it costs a ton of money to ship stuff from the U.S. Yeah. So um, my advice is to order three or more copies because then the shipping cost becomes a little bit less per copy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how a number of people in other places where they can't get it on Amazon, um, that's how they've done it, is they've they've ordered, even though they just wanted one for themselves, um, they ordered three copies or four copies or something and then and just gave them out uh, to other people. So. Stocking stuffers, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you, Andy. This has yeah. really been um, fun talking with you and, and I really appreciate your questions. They're right on. They're very sharp. And what you've filled in in between um, uh, has just, it's really been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Charles. I'm going to close off the show and say goodbye to you. So everybody, thank you very much for listening to this episode with Charles Feldman, and I hope you come back to listen to future episodes. Andy Vasily.